I have a story I'm going to share with you to start off. We're in Ecclesiastes 8 this week. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. Um, or swipe there. Now I should probably say more often. When I was in sixth grade, our class took a field trip to China Poot Bay, um, down across the Kachemak and Homer, uh, across from Homer. And the first night we spent, uh, before we went across the bay, we spent the night at the Homer Christian School um, that's no longer in existence. And that night I was in, in the shower room with some of my buddies, and I forgot my towel. So I go back to my room and get the towel. I come back to the doors, and I notice that there's the two doors, the girls and the boys, or the boys and the girls. It was unlabeled, Okay. Yeah, yeah, and it was like this terrifying game of choose your own adventure, right? And so I'm looking, I'm going, I can't, I don't, which, which one was it? And I'm like, no, I'm positive it was this one, right? Hashtag famous last words, right? I'm, I'm positive it's this one. And I open the door and I go to go in, and you know those moments in your life when everything kind of slows down, slow motion, like you're going to, like something breakable is dropping, no, and you're trying to, I turn, I go in the door, and I'm like, I'm pretty sure that I turned the other way last time, and I look up, and through the mirror, I just see this ball of pink flesh recoil, and you know, like in the Bible, like the, the, all the children's stories, when Eve has these strategically placed fig leaves, you know what I'm talking about? It was like that, without the fig leaves, and I... I'm a sixth grade boy, and I freak out. I turn 180, dart into the right bathroom. I have this, the, my face has the heat of a thousand burning suns, and I hear behind me, bursting down the hallway, Desiree Severson yelling, "Justin spying in the girls' bathroom! Justin spying in the girls' bathroom!" And there goes my reputation, my hopes and dreams of ever dating or finding love. It just all went down toilet the girl's toilet and to insult to injury that was day one of a week-long excursion to china poop bay we had assigned seats and you can guess who i'm sitting next to on the boat and all of the super mature names that i was called the rest of the week And, and now i drive past that defunct school and i have these like ptsd flashbacks you know freaks me out and i thought about this quote I'll read it to you. It says, Humility puts us in our proper place. It strips away the coat of pride that collects on our surface as we travel through life's more successful moments. Humility puts us in our proper place. And what we want to talk about this week in Ecclesiastes 8, the message is called, It's Hard to Be Humble. Those moments when God sort of puts us in our place, it's not a fun journey, but a necessary one. And Solomon is going to define humility in this chapter in four different ways. And we're going to learn the benefits of knowing our place, of of being humbled. Four things. The first one is humility is knowing how much you don't know. The second one, humility is living with what you don't like. Number three, humility is accepting what you can't change, like when the PowerPoint doesn't work. And number four, humility is enjoying what you can't explain. So number one, humility is knowing what you don't know. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to have to utilize those this morning, all right? Number one, humility is knowing what you don't know. If you look at the end of chapter eight, Solomon says these words. We're actually going to start with the last two verses, and then we'll go back forward. Um, But before we do, 
Consider our own scientific knowledge about, about this planet, our own planet. We just start here. It's been said we know more about space than we know our, of our own ocean. We know more of space than we know of our own ocean. Now, I actually don't think that that's true. I mean, the fact that, I mean, we don't even know how far the universe goes. So I think that's an exaggerated uh, point, but, but, hi mom. What is true is, did you know 95% of our ocean is unexplored? 95% of our own ocean has been untouched by mankind. Um, now, I've jumped in the inlet a few times, so I feel like I've done my part, my scientific contribution. Um, but we actually have, and I didn't know this, we have more detailed maps of Mars than we do our own ocean floor. We have more detailed maps of the planet Mars than we do our own ocean floor. 500 people have been sent into... Hey! I know, isn't that an amazing fact? Wow! Wow, you guys are so responsive today. <laughs> oh, man. Humility. <laughs> We've said, I'm going to say it again, standing ovation, we, 500 people have been sent into space. Only three people have gone to the deepest part of the ocean, the Mariana Trench. And, or take this fish, fish, for example. I'm glad we have it up here now because this, this, this would have fallen flat on its face without the visual. Um, this is a new species of ceratoid anglerfish, okay? Which is, this is, and this probably looks like a lot of you before you get your morning cup of coffee, right? Um, this, this thing, this is a freaky fish. It actually has that little thing on its top is like this fishing pole where it lures in other fish and then goes in for the kill. So this is like this crazy cannibalistic fish and we didn't even know before this last year we didn't even know that this fish existed we had never with all of our technology all of our tools had never even discovered this fish and there are hundreds more species that we're finding all the time in the ocean Blair's getting excited with this one right now if we only know five percent of our own ocean think about how little we know of the creator of that ocean and the purposes, and the plans, and the reason he does the things that he does. And yet, because we have a smartphone, we think we've got it all figured out. It's a joke. The end of chapter 8. I'm going to start at the end, then we'll go back to the beginning. Verse 16. When I applied my mind to know and to observe the labor that is done on earth, people getting no sleep day or night... Then I saw all that God has done. No one can comprehend what goes on under the sun, the creator of the oceans, the creator of the ever-expanding universe. Despite all their efforts to search it out, no one can discover its meaning. Even if the wise claim they know, they cannot really comprehend it. So we have people who say, I get it. I've figured it out. I've got it all in my head. He says, no, you're lying. No one can comprehend it. And that's why in Proverbs, Solomon warns us against this. He calls it being wise in your own eyes. He says in chapter 3, do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and shun evil. Fear the one who is wise. Don't consider yourself wise. Or as the New Living says, don't be impressed with your own wisdom. Don't be impressed with your own wisdom. Proverbs 12, the way of the fool seems right to them. They think they know, but the wise listen to advice. The wise understand that they don't know everything, and they listen to wise counsel. 
Isaiah 5, the prophet warns us. He says, woe, woe to those, warning, heed it, caution, woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. Or as the Apostle Paul says it in 1 Corinthians, those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know. You think you know, you're fooling yourself because you don't know. Solomon is telling us, listen, there are limits and boundaries to our own knowledge. He's not saying that wisdom is bad. He says wisdom, he's the same guy that said wisdom is is richer than all of the rubies and diamonds in the world. Pursue wisdom, but understand the limits of your own wisdom. And that's why all wisdom and knowledge begins with the fear of the Lord. Understanding he's the one who has all the mysteries, all all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge and knowing our place as his finite creation. And this kind of humility, to bring it back to the beginning of the chapter, this kind of humility changes our faces. Watch what he says, verse 1. How wonderful to be wise, to analyze and interpret things. Wisdom lights up a person's face, softening its harshness. Isn't that a fascinating verse? He says this kind of humility, it lights up our faces and it softens the harshness in our face. And the way that uh, his name was William Stridger, he said, a person's face is the signature of his soul. It's the signature of his soul. It kind of represents who he is as a person. It's kind of the window to his heart. And it was said about um, this missionary, Henry Martin. I think he was funny looking because it says, his features were not regular. Otherwise, he's saying... He ugly. But the expression was so luminous, so affectionate, so beaming with divine charity that no one could have looked at his features and thought of their shape or form. So he says they're not focusing on his big nose or whatever, you know, poor Henry had going on. He says the outbeaming of his soul would absorb the tension of every observer. So they say they look at his face and they don't see the goofy looking features. All that they see is the love of God radiating from it. Now listen, this doesn't mean that Christians walk around just like these fake smiles plastered on their face. Like we see through that. Like that's ingenuous and and we can detect that pretty easily. What he is saying, and you know the people in your life, especially the old weathered saints who have walked with God for years, there's, there's this softness about them. The grace of God is inscribed on their faces and they wear it well. And just like when Moses, remember when he, he brought the command, he got the commandments from the Lord and he comes down off the mountain and his face is glowing. People can't even look at it. He's got to cover it because of the glory of God. You think about where we are now as believers. Paul says in 2 Corinthians, and we all who with unveiled faces, Jesus has torn the veil, contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. He says, as we behold God, our faces are going to change. And like we sang, we're going to be like Jesus. So don't look in the mirror. Don't don't be wise in your own eyes. Don't check yourself out. Stare into the beauty of the Lord, and your face will change, and it will shine with his wisdom and his his humility. So wisdom, humility is, is, is knowing how much you don't know. And secondly, it's living with what you don't like. Solomon's going to, it's going to get a little bit tougher here, okay? No more shiny faces. Number, verse two, obey the king's command, I say, because you took an oath before God. 
Don't be in a hurry to leave the king's presence. Do not stand up for a bad cause, for he will do whatever he pleases. Since a king's word is supreme, who can say to him, what are you doing? Whoever obeys his command will come to no harm. So Solomon is giving us an illustration here of a king whose authority is ultimate and no one can question. He says, no one can say, verse 4, what are you doing? No one can question what the king's doing, can argue with it. So what does Solomon say? What's, what's our response? Verse 2, obey the king's command. Why? Because you took an oath. Now, context is important here. You remember when the Israelites demanded a king? They look around, Samuel, the priest, he has these kind of half-wit sons, and they're going, we're not following those jokesters. Um, and so they demand a king from God. And they say, we want to be like the other nations. And we talked about this a few weeks ago. Remember that Israel was called to be separate, to be apart from the rest of the nations, to be different. And one of the things that defined their difference was that God was their king. God was, was the one in charge. And they're to follow him, not have an earthly king. But they've rejected that and they demand a king. And, and, and God says, Samuel, they're not rejecting you. They're not rejecting their sons. They're rejecting me. This was an issue of control. This was an issue of trust in their God. And so God gives them what they ask for, and they ask for this king. He gives them a king, but he says, here's the warning for Samuel. Now listen to them, but warn them solemnly, and let them know what the king who will reign over them will claim as his rights. He goes, now be careful, because this king is going to demand stuff. He's going to demand land. He's going to demand, you know, flocks. He's going to demand servants, and he's going to, he's going to be in charge. You're going to have to follow this guy. So be careful what you ask for. That's what he's saying here. And from that point forward, the, the, the leaders of Israel, on behalf of the people, would take an oath to say, we are going to follow this king. We're going to obey this king. And that includes Solomon. In 1 Chronicles, all the officers and warriors, as well as all of David's, King David's sons, pledged their submission to King Solomon. So they take an oath, and they submit to the king, and they don't question his supreme authority. So part of humility is knowing once you've placed yourself under the authority of another, that you obey them even when you don't understand everything clearly. Now remember, all authority ultimately comes from God, right? Romans 13. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. Did you hear what he just said? The authorities that exist have been established by God, period. And here's the implication. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves, a.k.a. obey. Because this authority, and government in this context, but parents, bosses, fill in the blank, these authorities, they, they ultimately come from God. And so when we obey them and trust them, what we're really saying is, God, I obey you, I trust you, I submit to you. And I think this is a timely word during these caucuses. Now, is there a time for disobedience? Is there a time where you don't just wholesale obey? You remember in Acts 5, the authorities are telling the apostles, stop teaching about Jesus. But Jesus told them, all authority has been given to me, go and make disciples. So you have these two conflicting words, who do we follow? No brainer, Acts 5. Peter and the other apostles replied, we must obey God rather than human beings. 
when the authority's word is in conflict with the word of God, God, who is the supreme authority, is ultimately the one that we obey. Having said that, it's a very small fraction of the time that we will ever encounter that in our lives. Now, maybe we're going to trend more that toward that down the road. But I, I think our culture is very quick to disrespect, to disobey, and to quit. Our culture tells us your marriage isn't giving you the warm fuzzies, divorce. Your job isn't everything you ever wanted it to be, quit. You don't like the color of the church carpet, you don't like the songs that we're singing, leave. And Solomon says, slow down, slow down. Verse 5, whoever obeys the king's, his command, the king's command, will come to no harm. And the wise heart will know the proper time and procedure. There's a time and there's a way. He says, for there is a proper time and a procedure for every matter. And he says, there's a time for everything under the sun, chapter 3, though a person may be weighed down by misery. So there is a time and a place. There's a time to stay and a time to leave, a time to submit and a time to disobey. But... He says you need to be careful. And, and I think that, because we're not saying you can never switch jobs or you can never, you know, change churches. That's certainly not the point. But part of the word here is it's why it's so necessary to be careful ahead of time who you place yourself underneath, who you marry, what job you take. You know, be careful who you submit to, like he told the Israelites, because there is obedience that's going to follow. But be slow to speak, slow to anger, slow to quit, and recognize that there are going to be things in your life from authorities that you don't necessarily understand or that we don't necessarily like, but we trust the one who's placed that authority over us, and we walk ahead in obedience. In fact, humility is accepting, number three, what you can't change. Humility is accepting what you can't change. Has anybody seen anything ironic about this headline? There you go. Starting to, starting, you're starting to get there. It says, controlled burn gets out of control. So there were these local forest experts who had this planned brush fire that they thought they could contain, but guess what? They couldn't contain it. And it gets out of control, and this fire start, this planned brush fire becomes a forest fire. And how many times in our lives do we think we have the thing under control? That's an illusion, and then we lose control. Now, how many in here are control freaks? All right, you're, you're not going to make me raise my hand, right? Is that the, <laughs> a couple of you, very honest. Saw some of these. Um, you know, do you have to be the one holding the remote control? I do. I, the DVR, it's a work of art, and I'm a Picasso, right? Um, or, you know, you have to be the one that drives. You're the one that has to plan the event. I mean, you know, you, know if, you know if God's convicting you right now. And sometimes we don't even identify our need to control until we lose control. Okay, you tracking with me? Like, we don't even know that, that we needed to control it until we have lost control. and We realize how much we desired that control in the first place. And maybe you've lost control in a work situation or, or maybe with in, a, in a health way with yourself or a loved one. Um, maybe there's been a, a, a marital problem where you've been deserted or forced into something that, that you couldn't control. And with that comes this, this overwhelming sense of rage and, and helplessness. And if you've been there, you know exactly what I'm talking about. 
But Solomon says here the only healthy biblical response in those times is humility. It's, it's humility. It's like the serenity prayer we, we referenced. Lord, give me the serenity to accept the things I can't change and the wisdom to know the difference between the things that I can change and that I can't. Because for us as, as finite human beings, control, ultimate control is an illusion. And Solomon gives some examples of of what we can't control. He says, verse 8, As no one has the power over the wind to contain it, although wouldn't that make for a funny YouTube video, someone trying to contain the wind, so no one has power over the time of their death. He's mentioned this several times before. We don't control the time that we die. No matter how many precautions we take, our days have been numbered. And then verse 9, he says, I have thought deeply, the New Living says, about all that goes on here under the sun, where people have the power to hurt each other. I've called you to community, and you can't control this. You will be hurt. It's going to happen. It's out of your control. And then verse 10, then too I saw the wicked buried, those who used to come and go from the holy place and receive praise in the city where they did this. This too is meaningless. Do you see what he said there? He goes, these people were buried. They were wicked. They were evil. But they went to the holy place. They went to church. They looked the part. But underneath of that all, it was wickedness. And they got all this praise. And don't we do that? We praise celebrities and people. Once they're dead, they never did anything wrong, right? But when they were alive, we did nothing but tear them down. And he says, that's all this hypocrisy. because it's out of your control. You can't do anything about it. Verse 11, when the sentence for a crime is not carried out quickly, people's hearts are filled with schemes to do wrong. We hate it when somebody else doesn't get their comeuppance. Now, not us, right? It doesn't apply to me. Somebody else. Although a wicked person, verse 12, who commits a hundred crimes may live a long time, I know that it will go better with those who fear God who are reverent before him, and, and, and bank that. He said, it's better to fear God. We'll come back to that. Yet because the wicked do not fear God, it will not go well with them, and their days will not lengthen like a shadow. You see, he says, there's just chaos. Verse 14, there is something else meaningless that occurs on earth. The righteous who get what the wicked deserve, and the wicked who get what the righteous deserve, this too, I say, is meaningless. So, Solomon says here, he goes, you know, something that you're going to observe is someone does something that's evil or profane, and you know what they get for it? More money. They get a raise. They cheat, and they get a promotion. They get the bigger house, right? They get the girl that you had your eyes on. They get all of these things. They get more friends, and seemingly nothing bad happens to them. Then he goes, there's this guy over here who's been serving the Lord and doing his will his entire life, and he went broke. Now, that's not the popular story. That's not the good sermon illustration material, and that's not the prosperity gospel We want the story that goes, you know, I had no money in my bank account and my bill added up to $493, but I wrote the check in faith and wouldn't you know, Aunt Sally dies and leaving me in her will, guess how much? That's right, $493, praise God. (laughs) Not cheap, Aunt Sally, but whatever. Nobody ever gets up and goes, yeah, I wrote the check and then Aunt Sally pulled through, right? Now, great for Aunt Sally, but we were evicted, right? No, you don't hear that. But, but Solomon, he goes, slow down and be careful how you judge the world. 
We need to learn to see things from God's eternal perspective, not our temporary one. I remember in high school, my sister once asked me, she goes, this isn't fair. I have a friend who she never goes to church. She's not a good person. She doesn't live a good life. She does whatever she wants. And yet she gets, she has all this money and she has this boat and these toys and all these friends and everything's good. And she goes, here I am trying to do what God wants me to do. And I don't have any of that stuff. Well, we have cheap, unloving parents. What are you going to do? You know. I joke. But Jesus addresses this in Matthew. He says, what good will it be for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? He goes, long term, who wins out? For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what they've done. So he says, yeah, right now it looks unfair, but there's coming a day of reckoning, and God is going to judge everything that every person has ever done. And sidebar, praise Jesus for his finished work on the cross, or I'd be just as hosed as the next guy. Just because we don't see God hurling lightning bolts down on people as they do wrong and as they defy his name, it doesn't mean that he's asleep at the wheel. Every wrong, every right will be wronged, but not today. Not today. And the last one, humility is enjoying what you can't explain. Humility is enjoying what you can't explain. Now you might ask, okay, but what do I do in the meantime? While the wrongs go unpunished and the rights go unrewarded, what do I do right now? How do I cope in a world that I can't control? He says in verse 15, so I recommend, I recommend having fun because there's nothing better for people in this world than to eat, drink, and enjoy life. That's a nice verse. So Solomon says, you say, wait a minute. So Solomon's pointing out how little we know about life, how much we won't like these things in life, and how we have no control over this life. And then he goes, go out and have a good time? Yeah. That's exactly the point. If you can accept the unacceptable, not be ignorant to it, but if we can accept it, and we can acknowledge it, and we say, Jesus, you're in control. Jesus, take the wheel, right? We never had the wheel in the first place. That's an illusion. Solomon says you're going to avoid and you will not be ruled by a life of misery and fear. Ironically, it's only when we relinquish control of our lives that we actually find life. And again, in Matthew 16, he says, for whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. You were trying to hold on to this thing, but in the process of trying to hold on to it, we lose it. Because when you finally surrender and let it go, that's where you find it. That's where you get it. He says, eat, drink, and enjoy life, and that way they will experience some happiness along with all the hard work God gives them under the sun. So God has called us to do things, to do hard things, a hard work. And yet he says, once you've done the hard work of submitting to God, 
Once you have, have obeyed him, and by proxy, you've obeyed those that he's put over in charge of you in different areas of authority. Because when you've done those things, and maybe it's forgiving someone that you need to forgive. Maybe it's asking for forgiveness. Maybe it's letting go of some bitterness. Maybe it's repenting of something, laying something down at his feet, making a phone call. Because when you've done the hard things that I've called you to do, Call up your friends and your family and go out to Buckets. Go to Pizza Boys. Right? <laughs> Free plug. Sponsored player of the game last night. Or if you're more frou-frou, go to, good, go to Charlotte's or Fine Time. Such small portions at Fine Time. Can I? Okay. <laughs> We're not going to go there. Stay on track, Justin. It was a long weekend. He goes, eat and drink and laugh until it hurts. Go to bed with a full stomach and a full soul. I remember when I was in college, me and some buddies, we, we obeyed God. And we went to this restaurant that had the largest hamburger in Missouri. It was amazing. It took six, it was six or eight of us it took to, to eat this thing. And I think there was still a piece of it left. Um, it, was, it, it was a great way to obey this verse. Um, <laughs> And we had a great time just laughing and talking, sharing stories. Um, And God says, don't worry about the things that you can't control. Submit to him. Obey God. Follow Christ's gospel and what he's asking you to do. And then eat, drink, and enjoy what he's given you because the rest is in his hands. Now, Let's end here with some questions because I don't want us to hear the word and not, ob- not obey it, not apply it. It does us no good to just grasp these concepts intellectually but not let it change our hearts. So let me ask you, are there things in your life right now that are weighty and hard? Is there something that's keeping you up at night, something that's gnawing at you, something that needs to be changed? Maybe it's something at work with a family or a friend. Maybe there's a fractured relationship. Maybe there's a decision you're making or that you've made that you know is wrong. Let me ask you some questions. Have you done what Christ has asked you to do? Have you done the hard work that he's called you to? Have you been obedient to his word? Have you been obedient to the spirit that you know is speaking to you on that? Have you asked forgiveness where you needed to ask forgiveness? Have you been, have you, have you sought that out? Have you taken responsibility for your side of the thing, not just blame shifting the other? Have you let go of some bitterness that you've been holding on to potentially for years and years? Have you prayed? Have you sought God's direction in this thing and not just been wise in your own eyes? Um, have you surrendered to him? And it's not a, yeah, but they, yeah, but he or she, but this or that. Take that thought captive. Don't blame shift. Don't point the finger at someone else. There's a lot of things in our lives. Humility is learning to accept the things we can't change outside of our own control. We're talking this morning about the things that God has called us to do. Regardless of the externals, have, have I done all the things that Christ has asked me to do? Now, if the answer is no, then you just made your own application, okay? You know what the rest of your day or your week looks like. We need to do the thing that Christ has asked us to do and make that call. Say those hard words in love. Get on your knees. Let it go. Surrender. Obey. Do what he's asked you to do. But if the answer is yes, and listen, I'm not talking about the perfect person because that's nobody in here. But if there's nothing that the Holy Spirit is immediately pressing on your heart today that you need to, don't let the sun set on your anger, right? 
but there's nothing immediately that he's pressing upon you. I don't, I don't believe in sin hunting, looking around and going, God, there's got to be something else because there's always something that's going to be worked on. But if we have an open, honest heart that says, search me and try me, then he's going to point those things out in our lives as they come up. We walk forward in faith. If you've done all that he's asked you to do, then call up your friends and your family and go out to eat. Have a good time. Enjoy what he's given you. And please eat something unhealthy, okay? <laughs> Gluten, sugar, nothing green, okay? I know there's health conditions, so we'll say that. Uh, drink a soda, okay? If you go to the Mexican restaurant, I recommend the horchata, okay? Me gusta horchata. Laugh, tell exaggerated stories, and enjoy the people that God has put in your life. And hey, if you don't know anybody, I'll go with you, okay? I will... <laughs> <laughs> I will never turn down food, right? And I, and I say that as a joke, but I really, I mean, there might be people in this room who go, yeah, that sounds great, Justin, but I don't have anybody that wants to go to dinner with me. Or I don't have the resources to go out to dinner. I'll pay for you, okay? I'm a rich pastor now. I can do that. Um, <laughs> but the rest is out of our control, and it's in his hands. It's in his wonderful, merciful, faithful, loving hands and all that is left for us to do if we've done what he's asked us to do is to humbly trust him and enjoy what he's given us let's pray father god you are so good you are so good and we do not deserve it and father we're looking around in our lives and we see how much of the ocean we don't understand we saw how much in our lives we don't understand and we question but Father, I pray that you would grant us the humility to accept the things that we can't change, to understand how little we know, and, and, and to do the things that you've called us to do. The things you've called us to do can only be done by your grace. So we lean on you for the things that you called us to do. And we've done those things, God. Give us the ability to simply enjoy the things you've given us. You've given us food. You've given us friends. You've given us family and to enjoy those things. And when we enjoy those things, we take them from your hands and we say thank you. And we rest in your loving hands. Teach us, Lord, to rest like the author in Hebrews says. Let us labor into that rest that you've given us and trust you as our authority. And because we trust you, we trust the government, we trust the parents, we trust the bosses you put over us, not because they're not sinful people, but because you are in control. Let us surrender our lives to you and enjoy the things you've given us from those same hands. And it's in the name of your son we pray. Amen.